Now, at this point, he started going through what some might call a midlife crisis. He was making 650 grand a year, 650 grand a year. He started working out. He started getting plastic surgery to like make his chin look like more distinguished. He divorced his wife and started dating models. Then in 1975, October 24th, 1975 to be exact, he officially founded the DeLorean Motor Company, DMC. What up, what up, folks? What's going on? Welcome to the Spun Today podcast, the podcast that is anchored in writing, but unlimited in scope. I'm your host, Tony Ortiz, and I appreciate you listening. This is episode 191 of the podcast, and in this episode, I speak about watching the movie Free Guy. I also speak about watching a documentary series called Myth and Mogul, John DeLorean. Yes, about the dude who designed and blessed the world with that iconic automobile from, or should I say, Time Machine, popularized by one of the best trilogies of all time, Back to the Future. And lastly, I speak about watching season three of Master of None, which is subtitled Moments in Love. Stick around for all that good stuff. On a more somber note, I'd like to say rest in peace to Michael K. Williams, who is an amazing actor and by all accounts, an amazing person as well. I haven't heard anyone ever say anything negative or bad about the guy. Quite the contrary, he was described as being really approachable and helpful and the type of person to reach out to people and look after folks, try to give people breaks and like put them onto things and projects that he was working on. He blessed us with the most iconic and almost everybody's favorite character in almost everybody's favorite series, The Wire, when he played Omar, which prior to his passing, I had recently re- binge-watched like the entire series and I've been contemplating doing like a episode by episode or season by season deep dive on that and releasing it as you know like a podcast or something like that in the future so stay tuned if that actually comes to fruition but or like one of those like YouTube series perhaps he also played roles like Chalky White in Boardwalk Empire which was a great role he had a dope role in The Night Of and so many more so many others I there was a, a cool little like documentary he did where I think it was for Vice, where he went to somewhere in New Jersey, probably like Newark or Trenton or something like that. That was like the car thieving capital of the world. And he was like chopping it up with like car thieves and trying to get to like the root cause of why they're doing what they're doing and why they're struggling so, so much and uh, have to like resort to that type of shit. And, you know, spoke to others that were just like walling out and that's what they were into. That's what they wanted to do. It was just super sad loss, man. Rest in peace, Michael K. Williams. Died, unfortunately, of a accidental overdose of heroin. Why did I say it like that? Her- I try to say heroin and heroin at the same time. Cocaine and fentanyl. It's just uh, super sad to hear, man. Also, rest in peace to Norm McDonald, the quintessential comics, comics, comic. Super funny guy. Was secretly battling cancer for like nine years didn't tell anybody and um unfortunately succumbed to it after such a long battle he was super funny just like very like concise and had like this ability to work within an economy of words and say the super funny dark weird interesting shit 
and not be verbose about it, if that makes any sense. At least that's my, like, outside looking in perception of him. And he seemed like to always be looking for the funny angle, which most comics do, but just, like, on 24-7. Even, like, in normal conversation, like, seeing, like, clips of him, like, older clips of him, obviously, you know, people are putting out quotes and clips and stuff like that. And I saw an interview he had with Larry King, and he would do or at least in that interview, but I would say that he would do what the actor's equivalent to staying in character would be, but in the comedy sense, like he'll stay in a joke. Like he won't break from it. And I'm definitely going to butcher it. So if you guys can uh, look it up and if I can find it, I'll, I'll link to it in the episode notes, but it was just like an ongoing conversation with Larry King. He was saying that he was terrified to like come out of the closet, Norm Macdonald. Larry King was like, why are, are you, you know, homosexual, whatever, what are you afraid of? And he was like fucking with Larry King in a sense. And he was like, no, I'm not a homosexual. I'm just terrified of coming out, out of the closet. And Larry King was like coming out as what? And he was like, as a homosexual. He was like, but you're not a homosexual. Yeah, but I'm terrified of coming out as, as such. And it just like kept going and going. And it was just a funny dude, man. Rest in peace, Norm MacDonald. Now, after those two bummers and on a slightly lighter note, I'd like to wish a very happy birthday to the Spun Today podcast. That's right. You heard it, folks. The Spun Today podcast is now seven years old. The very first episode of the Spun Today podcast aired on September 29th, 2014. Thank you very much to my day one listeners, all half a dozen of you, and to everyone we've picked up along the way, those that have come and gone, those that continue to stay. You're very much appreciated. It's been a dope experience for me, very cathartic. I love doing it and hope to continue to do so until the wheels fall off. And we'll appreciate you guys continuing on the journey with me. With that said, here is a quick way that you can help support the Sponsored Podcast if you so choose. And then we'll jump right into the episode. The Sponsored newsletter is available to each and every one of my listeners absolutely for free. All you have to do is go to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe and drop in your email address. What I'm going to do is brighten up everybody's least favorite day of the week by delivering five curated things within my weekly newsletter every Monday at noon. You're going to receive a photo of the week, a recommended podcast of the week. I listen to tons of podcasts from an array of varied interests. I cherry pick the very best ones so that you can check them out. I also share a video of the week, which can be anything from a tasty recipe to a dope rap battle to an enlightening TED talk. I also share a quote of the week. And finally, for my fellow wordsmiths out there, a word of the week so that you can step up your vocab. Again, this curated list is yours absolutely free by going to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe and dropping in your email address and you can unsubscribe at any time. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe, drop in your email address, and you'll get the very next one. Free Guy was written by Matt Lieberman and Zach Penn. Here is the official synopsis. A bank teller discovers that he's actually an NPC inside a brutal open world video game. This was one of those movies that had an awful trailer. So much so that when I saw it, it didn't even register to me as something that I would watch. And I love Ryan Reynolds. I think that guy's like so charismatic that he can play anything. He's an action with 
like Deadpool and Weapon X, comedy, like Just Friends, the Blade Trinity role that he played, fucking Green Lantern. I even liked Green Lantern. <laughs> and Lil Rel is in it also, which is another guy that, that is hilarious and I would watch something just because Lil Rel is in it. But the trailer again was so bad at describing like what this movie was that it made me not want to watch it. Then I was having dinner with my brother one day and he told me he saw the movie and he liked it. He described it as Matrix-like and that's it. He said other stuff also, obviously, but that's it. That was it for me in terms of wanting to watch it. So there's a pro tip for movie marketing folks. I think Matrix-like should be like its own genre. And it's, it's like weird because once somebody says that, it's like your mind opens up into like it doesn't have to be exactly like the matrix but you know what that means it's like a different language it's like a the matrix changed like so much just like in the zeitgeist not just like in in cinema and obviously like with the cinematography and and literally the way fight scenes are shot and and stuff like that but just like in the possibilities of and like questions to answers or even or just like doubling down on questions of like why are we here what's the meaning of life and playing with themes like oppression and big brother and archetypes of god and that once you label something matrix like you know you're just in for like a different realm of reality if you will and me personally i love that type of shit so in this movie free guy they live in a like grand theft auto like video game and by they i mean ryan reynolds character little rel's character etc and most of the characters that we meet. And they are NPCs or non-player characters, which are driven by AI. So what an NPC is, if you think of like a game like Mario Brothers back in the day on Nintendo, Mario or Luigi is a player character. That's the player that you as the player are controlling. The NPCs or non-player characters would be like the mushrooms and like the flowers that shoot fireballs that attack you and like stuff like that. And those like background characters that are moving and like doing things but they're like programmed to do specific things. And as, you know, gaming and technology evolved, you know, non-player characters do like much more shit. Like think of a game like Grand Theft Auto, which is like an open world and, you know, a non-player character could be somebody walking down the street that you as a player character punch and he knocks out and his money's exposed and you take all his money or the prostitute that you pick up in a car and drive into an alleyway and have sex with. That's an NPC. And NPCs are all programmed to do certain specific tasks and certain specific things to fulfill their roles as background characters in a video game. So Ryan Reynolds is one of these NPCs and he wakes up every single day, does the exact same thing over and over again. He works at a bank. He wakes up, he has cereal, watches the news, goes to a coffee shop, buys the same exact cup of coffee. And everyone that he interacts with in his world are also NPCs, with the exception of the real player characters within the game, which are everybody around the world that is like hooked on this game that's like super popular. And the NPCs refer to those people as glasses people. And these are the people that have a lot of money and they have cool cars and they can do what they want. And, you know, they're like characters in a video game. Like when you play a video game and you do like wild, crazy shit. And he works at a bank, and Lil Rel is the security guard at the, that bank. Ryan Reynolds is a, a teller at the bank. And that bank gets robbed every single day, multiple times. And it's just commonplace, because that's what happens at that bank, right? That's 
one of the coded possibilities for that bank and the NPCs act accordingly when the bank gets robbed. Now, the true creators of this game, they coded the AI so that the they can be like self-learning eventually. At least that was like their goal or their, their hope. And with Ryan Reynolds' character, that actually happened. And he was triggered by this desire to find the woman of his dreams and like fall in love, which was coded as like a personality trait in this NPC. But when he actually sees the exact woman that he like envisions in his mind and is singing like a, a vintage Mariah Carey song, which was a great touch, by the way. Mar- Mariah Carey is in her prime, my favorite female singer. But anyway, that him seeing her walk by him and like singing or humming a Mariah Carey song, like triggered all this shit within him of, oh, that's the woman of my dreams. And like knocked him out of that like loop that he was in of just fulfilling his purpose essentially as an NPC. And then for some reason he dares to like go after her and try to talk to her and he winds up dying. And then, you know, he wakes up and respawns in his bed like every other morning and then continues his day. But he has her in his head and he's trying to find the way to be able to speak with her. And he winds up taking the glasses off one of the glasses people, like an actual player in the video game. And he puts it on and just sees this whole new world essentially around him of possibilities and he is able to interact with her and the story takes off from there and then she eventually puts him onto the fact that he's an npc he doesn't seem to understand like what that is and you know she's kind of like thrown off by the fact that this npc character is kind of sort of like come to life in a way and she's on her own like mission request like throughout this this movie because she is one of the two original creators of that original ai that actually wound up like working and and allowing for that possibility of like growth and ai becoming like sentient in a way but for the for like the first half of their interacting she just thought it was like another player you know another one of the glasses people basically but her quest or mission that she's on is trying to expose the fact that the creator of this game stole that ai technology from her and her partner her partner, which is played by the dude that plays the older brother in the Stranger Things series on Netflix. And spoiler alert, he's been in love with her, aka his partner, like in real life. So the fact that she kind of sort of like falls for this NPC character guy is like the perfect tie out to the fact that he coded that NPC to fall in love with her. And, you know, just based or like her type of like characteristics and the type of things that she's into, like vintage Mariah Carey and bubblegum ice cream, etc. And that love story is like a nice B story for the film. Now, what's super cool is that the fact that he dared to like take the glasses and to want more and to like chase that love had like a ripple effect on all the other NPCs within that world. And he kind of had like a similar effect to the other NPCs like Tobey Maguire did in the movie Pleasantville when he like started seeing color and like describing it to people and other people started seeing color and like, you know, things changed. Ryan Reynolds character had that same type of change in like asking the barista where he where he usually got his regular coffee with two sugars and asked her for a cappuccino and had her like head 
almost explode in wanting to make a in trying to figure out what the fuck a cappuccino was and why are you asking for a cappuccino you always ask for a regular coffee with two sugars etc and then wanting to learn how to make a cappuccino and then she wanted to do something else and like i forget what it was like write a book or do psychology or like try to change the world in some way something like that it was really funny throughout as well again ryan reynolds great at that comedic acting little rel is just a hilarious comic and now comedic actor within his own right as well and they played off each other very well towards the end which was hilarious was that like the bad guy that actually did like steal the code from uh the original creators to use in this game that he popularized uh created a character to like kill off this npc character of ryan reynolds because he was getting so big and popular but he has to he had to like fast track his plans and the character like wasn't ready yet so he had like a bunch of like placeholder code in place to like go back and fill in later so like he would be talking and he would say something and then he would just say the term catchphrase instead of his actual catchphrase because the coder of the character didn't come up with a cool catchphrase for him yet or he would be arguing with somebody and then say adjective and i thought that was hilarious especially from a writing perspective because i was telling my wife which i actually went to by the way to the movies to watch this because my wife and i we used to like pre-pandemic that's like one of our favorite things to do is actually go to movies even though you know this was available like on like hbo max and obviously you could download shit allegedly but we hadn't been to the movies in over a year year and a half so we went to the movies to go see this and which was dope by the way we almost had like the whole theater to ourselves but I was telling her on the way out that it was funny because with me, like with stories that I write, and I'm sure other writers go through this as well. And I, I just never thought of it from like a game coder perspective. But when I'm writing a story, I'll like know that there's like a fight scene that has to happen here, but I'm not ready to write the fight scene yet. And I'm like on a train of thought of where the story is going. So I want to keep writing the story. I'll like put in parentheses, you know, insert fight scene here. And then I'll, on the rewrite go back and rewrite it so it was pretty cool to see from that game quarter perspective alex trebek made a cameo in the movie as well it was really good man it was really good i enjoyed it and i definitely recommend it free guy check it out myth and mogul john delorean this is a three-part documentary series available on netflix here's the official synopsis in the automotive world john delorean rose from engineer to executive, to icon. But under the hood of his self-created legend lies darkness and deceit. Those of you that know me or that have listened to the Sponsor Day podcast for some time know that I'm a huge, huge Back to the Future fan. I love the DeLorean. I hope to actually own one one day. And this doc is a great background on how that car even came to be. There's also a great article by Brian Talerko, which I'll link to in the episode notes. Brian Talerko is the editor of RogerEbert.com. Do you guys remember Roger and Ebert? They used to have that show where they used to rate movies and give it a, like a thumbs up, thumbs down. There's a lot of details within it that line up perfectly with the, the documentary. And I'm going to share some with you guys here. John DeLorean officially began his automotive career in 1952, joining the research and development team at Packard Motor Car Company where he very soon became a rising star. In 1956, DeLorean took a position at General Motors as an engineer at the Pontiac Division. In 1961, DeLorean was named the Division Chief Engineer. 
That's when he had the engineering team throw a big 389 cubic inch V8 engine from the full-size Pontiac Bonneville into a mid-size Pontiac Tempest. DeLorean called it the Pontiac Tempest Le Mans GTO, and it created a new category of automobile that would come to be known as the muscle car. He later became the youngest general manager at Pontiac at age 40. Four years after that, he was named the youngest manager of Chevrolet. And in 1972, he was made the head of GM's North American car and truck operations. Now, at this point, he started going through what some might call a midlife crisis. He was making 650 grand a year, 650 grand a year. He started working out. He started getting plastic surgery to like make his chin look like more distinguished. He divorced his wife and started dating models. Then in 1975, October 24th, 1975 to be exact, he officially founded the DeLorean Motor Company, DMC. Within two years, the company created a mid-size or mid-engine rather prototype to draw in investors. He initially brought in Bill Collins, which was a former colleague of his at Pontiac, who was a key player in the creation of the GTO that gave him all his success early on to engineer the first prototype, which would be known as the DMC-12. But then DeLorean wound up bringing in someone else, Colin Chapman, which was this flashy founder of the Lotus cars, to re-engineer the chassis and the suspension. And then shortly after, he wound up getting rid of Collins. And this is something that the documentary touched on as well that I wanted to highlight is that when you're his favorite, you could do no wrong. This was like uh, said about uh, John DeLorean. When you're his favorite, you can do no wrong. And then the moment that you're not his favorite, which can happen like overnight, you're either in or you're out. And Collins at that point was out. But with this design, a lot of seed company, uh, seed money rather, came into the company very quickly from big names or firms rather like Bank of America and a bunch of different entertainers like Johnny Carson from The Tonight Show, Roy Clark, I'm not sure who that is, Sammy Davis Jr., just to name a few. He also raised a bunch of money through a program that gave dealerships that sold DeLoreans shares in the company. And, you know, he was such a mogul at this time within this industry and such a rising star that everybody was like all in. And he also went looking for government funds to help him develop a factory to mass produce this DeLorean. It was said about him that he was constantly cutting corners. He was not a great businessman. And we see that beginning to unfold when he's like at this stage of the, of the company. He wound up creating a factory where he could get it the cheapest, which was in Belfast, Ireland, during the middle of a civil war that they were having there. And to do so, he got a bunch of money from the government there, and but it still wasn't enough. By day one of production, they would not have any money left. So he seeked to extend that those funds and you know get more poured into the factory over there. But the then Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher took a hard line approach and said that they weren't going to be investing in any more American companies. At that time, they had obviously a civil war going on and a bunch of other issues. Even at this point, though, the workers there still loved him because by this point, the the plant is built. They've begun you know, production of automobiles. They were just like hemorrhaging money. But there was like an 80% unemployment in this town. So it created like a ton of jobs, you know, skilled labor. These people were like, really proud of what they were doing. They loved working for him. And you could see the joy, like in the documentary, there's this scene where they interview an, an employee 
who was there when the first production car like turned over when they turned it on and like drove it and he has like tears in his eyes and like describing the whole thing all in all though they were able to be in production for 28 months where 9,000 of these DeLoreans were built and approximately about 6,000 were actually sold to consumers. And they did so within 28 months. For most car companies at that time, it would take them nine to 10 years to accomplish that, like from design to actual production. I mean, I guess that's what cutting corners gets you, right? Like you, you get somewhere fast, but eventually shit catches up to you. The company wasn't able to sustain itself. And obviously the rest is history. Now in attempting in a, like a last ditch effort to actually make the company successful or like bring it out of the ruins. John DeLorean tried doing a drug deal (laughs) out of all things. DeLorean was arrested in a videotaped sting by the FBI during which he allegedly agreed to a scheme to sell 220 pounds of cocaine worth an estimated $24 million in the hope it would provide enough cash to like keep his company afloat. And he was essentially entrapped by his neighbor and the feds. Which is why he was ultimately like acquitted of acquitted rather of all charges. But this is how conniving and cutting cornerish he was. When DeLorean told his neighbor and the people he was he thought he was doing this drug deal with, which turned out to be the feds, that he didn't have cash to pay for the drugs up front, the informant promised to put up the funds for him as long as he DeLorean put up his company as collateral. And that's what DeLorean agreed to. And he actually did. But what he did was not hand over control to the DeLorean Motor Company or the DeLorean Motor Cars Limited, but instead he gave them control of DMC Inc., which was a dormant shell company that had zero assets. So he was essentially conning them while they were entrapping him. But thereafter, he lost everything. Accountants were able to go through the finances and assets of the DeLorean Motor Company in civil court. And after like two decades, like creditors were able to recoup about $100 million. And as for John DeLorean, he wound up dying in a walk-up condo in Jersey. And at the time of his death in 2005, the way he was making money was selling watches online. The like touching part about this doc that I could definitely relate to being a father and, you know, being a son and was his son his actual son being interviewed throughout this documentary and his son was you know he definitely acknowledged his father's faults with like extreme hurt in his eyes but he kept highlighting like the legacy of the actual car like till the end and i could definitely relate to his son doing so and it just goes to show cutting corners and shit like that and the decisions you make how that trickles down and like affects folks around you you know fucking sucks but that is still a badass car though right (laughs) folks that is myth and mogul john delorean streaming on netflix check it out master of none season three aka moments in love and the fact that it has like a separate season title or subtitle is fitting because in a lot of ways, it's a departure. Season three is a departure from what we've seen seasons one and two, which was the very comedic, loosely based on the life of Aziz Ansari, both personally and professionally, and his friends just living in New York and trying to figure things out on both those fronts, professionally and personally. Whereas for season three, the official synopsis is 
Denise and her wife, Alicia, take center stage this season, grappling with doubts and heartache when a rift emerges in their happy marriage. The series, Master Run, was created by Aziz Ansari and Alan Yang, his friend, which he met working as a writer on Parks and Rec. And seasons one and two are largely written by Aziz and Alan. They both run a writer's room together, and they have a group of writers. With a special exception for within season two, the coming out episode, which is centered around Denise's character, the character that's one of the main focuses of season three, played by Lena Waithe. She wrote an episode of season two, a coming out episode where she came out of the closet to her, to her family on Thanksgiving, I believe, or Christmas or some holiday. And in writing that episode, she was the first African-American woman to earn an Emmy for best comedy writing. But aside from that, the writing for seasons one and two, again, is very comedic written by Aziz, and, which is a stand-up comedian, and Alan Yang, along with The Writer's Room. There's a contrast there as well when it comes to season three. Season three was written by Aziz Ansari and Lena Waithe. Now, I watched a really cool interview that I'll link to in the episode notes for you guys to check out, which was really cool, by the way, the, of Netflix to do it this way. I don't know if it was like purposeful or if they plan to do more, but I like the idea of it where... In promoting this season of the show, Chris Rock interviewed Aziz Ansari. And what I mean by, I don't know if Netflix is going to plan to do more of this, but I think they should, is instead of having like a, you know, a specific show within Netflix that interviews folks within the Netflix universe to, you know, promote shows and stuff like that, just have like their friends or somebody that they want interviewing them to interview them. You know what I mean? Just have like one-offs and you'll wind up with probably a pretty eclectic, interesting mix of people that intimately know, or at least have a relationship with the star or director or writers of certain shows that are on promo runs. And the beauty of things like that now is that you can have both. You can still have, let's say, you know, let's say Chris Rock is, just as a show now or within Netflix where he's interviewing people and helping them promote their shows. Like you can still have the other idea also, you know what I mean? That's like the beauty of like the online and digital age and different people who gravitate towards different things. But anyway, I digress. I saw a dope interview with them too that gives a lot of insights into how this season came about. And I'm going to give you guys some of my takeaways from it. And I will link to that interview in the episode notes. If you guys want to check it out, please do. And in that interview, Aziz said that, you know, pre-COVID, they already had a 10-episode season planned, and it was written. They even got to the point of doing table reads, and Aziz was actually in, like, at least half or more of the episodes within the season. But this was early March 2020, and then that's when the threat of COVID was beginning to happen, right? So... They, when they got to the point of the, those table reads, they decided to shut down production for three weeks to see how the whole like COVID thing would play out. And obviously it played out the way it did. And that three weeks turned into a much longer time. A quick aside, which is cool to me hearing that, is that they did at least have like that full 10 episode season planned. Because after Aziz's Me Too incident we thought master of none was just not coming back at all 
which really would have sucked because it's such a great show. And also the incident with disease is like the consensus for most people is the, that it was a bad date that he had, but at a very wrong time. It was like at the height of the Me Too movement. So it got caught up in that wave. So for such a good show that's just starting out, had two seasons out to have gone away for essentially a non-incident would have been a huge disservice to the fans, to the artists, the writers, the actors, the team of folks that put this together. So I'm definitely glad it did come back. Now, so what happens next? They decide to shut down production for approximately three weeks. COVID turns into a much longer issue. And then after a few months, they start thinking about reshooting again and seeing places where they can start shooting. But a lot of the season, the way it's written, it was very a very non-COVID friendly shooting schedule. There was like a lot of shoots in like different places, basically. And then Aziz and Lena are friends that, you know, met on on the show but stayed friends and stay in touch and, you know, they speak to each other about relationship issues and, and stuff like that. And the way Aziz tells it, those phone conversations between them during this time were the seeds for Moments in Love for season three. So Aziz spoke to his co-creator, Alan, and said that he has this idea of writing this separate other season with Lena and pitched it to, to Lena and to Netflix and they, they were on board. And it was much more COVID friendly, like you guys will see if, or if, you know, you've seen it, you know, if you haven't seen it, you will know that the entire season, it's one, it's five episodes, it's not 10. And two, it's 99% based on the lives of these two married women that live together in one house. So it's like one location, handful of locations, but mainly one location and a handful of people mainly just them two. So it's much more COVID friendly from that shooting perspective that everyone was worried about at the time. And what's cool is that when they switch gears to write moments in love, the way they wrote it was Aziz wrote a first draft of the script and Lena would give a pass through, um, would give him like, uh, he would send it to Lena. Lena would send him like voice notes and her pass through of the script and they wrote the script back and forth like that. Then from a directorial perspective, Aziz wanted to direct all five episodes. And he did. And he says in this interview that I referenced earlier as well, that his style of shooting, the cinematography style, was inspired by Ozis, a Japanese director, which never used like dolly shots and never moved the camera. Each shot, if you notice, within this uh season are like still one angle shots and the way Aziz described it is that you feel like there's nothing happening but by the end of the the episode you get like some sort of like emotional gut punch which I think is is pretty accurate he also says this uh, directorial style was also inspired by Chantal Ackerman which is a Belgian director and she would do things like hold on the character for a long time when they were doing things like washing the dishes or cleaning a tub and like mundane tasks And you'll see this throughout this season of Moments in Love, where the camera will just hold on Lena doing laundry, or washing dishes, or smoking a joint, or Alicia wiping down an antique, because she works at an antique shop, etc. And I thought it was pretty cool. It was uh, definitely a different look, a different pacing 
of course from seasons one and two but just like in general it was like a different had a very different feel to most of like the shows or movies that i watch and it was interesting it felt kind of very like artsy fartsy that's a technical term and um i don't know i like shit like that sometimes even if it goes over my head which i'm sure a lot of it does but i like being a fly on that wall and just like experiencing something different like that the way it's shot also felt like very very much like a play to me like something i would see on broadway which i also like so maybe that's why i like this something else that i really like just from a technical point of view which you can't get away with on like traditional television is that each of the episodes are different length like for example the first and fourth episodes are about an hour long and the other three are between like 22 minutes and 32 minutes long and the first episode is kind of like setting the pace for what this season is going to be and the fourth was just so emotionally heavy that it definitely warranted like that extra time so i'm glad it wasn't like rushed and squeezed into like a 22 or 32 minute episode and in this season we see that lena has become or lena's character denise rather has become pretty successful she wrote a book that was a hit she's married now they own a house in like upstate new york with a lot of property and she's working but struggling with writing her second book which minus having monumental success with my first novel or my first book, I can definitely relate to everything else. <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of the fellow Spun Today writing community out there can. Then Aziz's character that we started seeing gaining momentum within his professional career over the the previous two seasons and like gaining success, it kind of like flipped with Lena. She started getting a lot of success and he started re- regressing professionally. He had to move back in with his parents. He was in a relationship now with the girl with this pretentious girlfriend that he's with that's like living with him or fiance or something and that he's constantly butting heads with and we get all that from the like one of like two scenes throughout the entire series that Aziz is in because he really focused on directing and not like being the center of this season and we also find out that Lena and Aziz's characters hadn't spoken in a while that's how like caught up she is like in her life and writing her second book and trying to work on her second book. She's kind of like pushed people away in a sense, or is not like really paying too much attention to to the folks around her within her orbit, including her wife that she lives with, who we learn wants to have a baby and has broached the subject with Lena before. And she kind of sort of mentions not being ready and it mentions his work and stress and like stuff like that, but then like gives into the idea of it. And I like the way this show or this, well, the show, yeah, but this season specifically highlighted having real conversations within relationships because like that, like these are two lesbian women, two black lesbian women, and I am a straight Latino guy and I can still relate to a lot of the conversations that we're having. You know what I mean? So that the ability to pull that off means that you've created and written something universally relatable. And what I mean by that is having real conversations like discussing the decision to have a kid, which I know I had with my wife when she was ready before I was, or getting married, getting engaged, moving in together, these like big life altering decisions that we all make and make with that someone else that's in our lives, right? 
in just like conversations about life. Like for example, in episode two, they had a really good conversation, Lena's character and Alicia's character in front of a fireplace. And they're just talking about life and people getting sick and dying and stuff like that. I think it was Lena that says, you know, it doesn't matter what you do in this life. This is what happens. You get old and you get sick. And those like mundane feeling conversations, but that are about existential things are something that is something that drew me into this season. Then I believe around season three is when they pretty much find out that they both cheated on each other and decide to split up, get a divorce, sell the house. And actually, let me rewind that a bit. Before that happens, they agree to give it a shot to have a kid. And my only gripe with the show is this character right here. They decide to, you know, go through the whole IVF treatment process. That's a in vitro fertilization. And in discussing finding a donor, a semen donor, they speak about a friend of theirs, a mutual friend that they have. Alicia says she thinks he, he would be a good candidate if he would be willing to. And Lena agrees. And they invite him over to dinner to pitch him the idea. And he's like completely fine with it. Goes with it like nothing. Like, you know, he's lending them a hundred bucks or something like that. Just like, it's like nothing. That's my only gripe with this series. This, not series, this season. Because that character, he definitely serves a purpose, right? Throughout the the season, the scenes that he's in, he's there as the sperm donor that they both know. And he also highlights the hardships to come when Alicia's character, or Alicia rather, asks him if he's like known anybody that's gone through this before and he which was a bit on the nose which is again why i have an issue with this character but i see the purpose he's serving so i'm a little torn but feel that there was like a better way to write him anyway he of course knows somebody else that went through it and you know broke down you know it's tough it's expensive etc blah blah blah, and kind of like foreshadowed what was to come but besides that you know even after the divorce and like that volatility and their relationship that he was already down to, you know, donate his sperm for the whole thing. He was still down, would still meet with Alicia and, you know, donate whenever he had to donate while she was going through IVF treatments. And, you know, even offered, you know, do you want me to be in the kid's life? Do you not want me to be in the kid's life? Like, who does that? He was like too, you know, he was like a saint. <laughs> you know what I mean? He was just like, we need a character who is not going to be in the picture, but who does every single thing else perfectly and saintly like and is willing to donate sperm and then disappear you know what i mean like he he checked out the boxes served those purposes but i don't know just like seemed is unrealistic in my opinion and that's not to say that nobody would do that like for a friend or something like that but the nonchalantness with how he did it and how his character like approached that was just didn't didn't seem authentic to me and I could be wrong. You know, maybe there are sperm angels like him out there, but that was just like my read on it. But anyway, aside from that, everything else in this season, I enjoyed. So after the split, their divorce, Alicia has decisions to make. She is now living on her own. She had a goal of opening up her own antique shop. And this IVF treatment thing is very expensive. And she realizes she can only do either or try the IVF treatments or go rent the space that was like a dream space for her 
for her antique shop and she went the route of the IVF treatments because her biological clock was ticking. She's, uh, her character was like 37, I believe. And the doctor sat down with her and explained to her that she's like at the peak of where things, uh, the likelihood of her getting pregnant start declining very quickly. And the show I thought did a, a cool job of highlighting like the ignorance behind like archaic insurance codes and how her insurance wouldn't cover this treatment, the IVF treatment, because they don't have a code specific to like a lesbian woman going through IVF treatment. But if it was a heterosexual woman that was trying to get pregnant but couldn't, then the insurance would cover it. So it was like a fucked up archaic technicality type of thing there. And she has a like really funny and heartfelt conversation with her mom on the phone when she is trying to psych herself into her first IVF like injection shot because she's like doing them all herself administering them all herself for the length of the treatment because it would be more expensive if she got paid like a nurse to do it and she pretty much just has to like inject her belly and take certain pills etc so that was a, a pretty cool scene there and we see within episodes three and four mainly in four the hour-long episode which was almost all about Alicia her like roller coaster ride with this IVF treatment and trying to get pregnant. The first go around, she has a very low egg count at the end of everything, only five eggs, two or three of which survive to like get to the next phase, but none of which were successfully like fertilized, so she lost all of them. And that's after, you know, going through all this expensive treatment. And then she had a decision to make, either try it again, which again is you know, double everything, double the claw cause, you know, literally trying it again. And with little to no hope that she would be successful in getting pregnant. And she decides to go for it. And the second time she winds up getting 13 eggs, five of which were successfully inseminated or fertilized rather. I'm not sure what the exact like technical terms are, but it was like a great outing or a great result rather. But then she had a roadblock where they saw they found like polyps within her uterus that they had to like operate on and remove before attempting to like put the fertilized eggs in her uterus and like make her pregnant so they had to freeze the eggs so then you think you know it's kind of like drama like ratcheting up in the episode and you think that something else is going to happen but then she winds up successfully getting pregnant which is like a really emotional like scene and then later in the Next and last episode, we find out that she did successfully, you know, give birth and have a child. And I'm going to cut to a quick article that I read that I want to read this excerpt from that underscored perfectly the writing and the Aziz as a director's decision to shoot in this way. And by in this way, I mean, you know, you see this hour long or ordeal like roller coaster ride of emotions of like going through IVF treatments and not, you know, spending all your money on it, not successfully getting pregnant, then deciding to do it again as a last ditch effort and then getting pregnant and then not knowing if you're going to be able to have the kid because of the polyps and then being, you know, having the kid, you know, you go through all that, but then you don't see like the kid being born or her raising the kid or her, you know, like that, like iconic shot of the baby being born and her holding the baby for the first time or something like that. You know what I mean? Like that wasn't the emotional shot. It was the, you're pregnant. And then fast forward it to 
a different episode where she already has the kid and we don't even see the kid it's just like a, a mention of like her talking to him on the phone or her rather is a little girl named lola and it was definitely an interesting decision to do that and this excerpt from this article i think describes it perfectly and the article is written by brian talerico on RogerEbert.com. he's the editor of that site you guys remember robert ebert roger ebert rather from cisco and ebert they used to like review movies back in the day on like channel seven or something like that late at night give it like two thumbs up or a thumbs up and a thumbs down and they would go back and forth and critique movies anyway brian Salergo is the editor of the site RogerEbert.com, and he wrote this what's interesting is how ansari the director will spend an incredible amount of time on what might be considered mundane and then speed through major events with montage it creates a sense of leafing through old photographs sometimes we linger over one for a long time and sometimes we leave through the years in a matter of seconds and i thought he said that perfectly because it was like we were stuck in that moment or those, those like series of moments in time with alicia and her struggle through trying to get pregnant and then like speeds through and fast forwards you know a few years later very cool and different and interesting and the alternative to that which would have been you know us seeing that iconic you know shot of her you know going through labor and pregnant the pregnancy and giving birth and holding the baby and seeing her raise the baby and stuff like that although it would have been satisfying it would have been it wouldn't have been anything new we wouldn't have been seeing anything that we hadn't seen before whereas this way we get the closure of the fact that she did have the kid and everything is all good. And we got to see it in a different way. And then in that last final episode, episode five, we find out that she had the baby. We find out that her and Lena still stayed in, or Lena's character, Alicia and Denise, still stayed in touch and contact and were both with other women at this point. Both had kids at this point or one kid each. And both were cheating on their spouses with each other, which again was like the reason why they like got divorced. And the season comes full circle where they go back to the house where they used to live in together because it's now an Airbnb and Lena's character rented it as a surprise to like take her up there and they got away for a weekend together. And a funny ass <laughs> quote from that episode is that um, Denise tells Alicia just be ready to see the decorations are a lot less black than when we used to live here. And she goes, they definitely colonized it. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty funny. And then we learn that Lena still hasn't been able to write that second book. She's like super hesitant, has a lot of like trepidation and being able to like move forward. She has like a corporate writing gig again, a nine to five to like pay the bills and she hates it she feels like it's hell she literally describes it as such in a very relatable way again and she compares you know having the success that she had before with her first book and all the like money and fame and acclaim that came with that and the financial freedom that it awarded her and she felt like she was in heaven and then now where she has to go back to the corporate grind she it feels like hell where you know she has to like answer to people and be at other folks's like beck and call and work weekends, etc. 
and she said something interesting, which was that the one of the hardest things is the fact that she did get to see what heaven was like with that success. She felt that if she never got to feel what that was like, then maybe her current situation wouldn't feel as bad. Maybe it wouldn't feel like hell because she wouldn't know any different. And I thought that was an interesting take on the situation. And we also learned that Alicia's character wound up opening up her own antique shop after all. So she was able to get the kid and the antique shop in the end, which was like dope for her and her character arc. And another funny scene, which I'll leave you guys with, was when they're in bed at the end and Alina's character is eating a, a moon pie in bed. And then Alicia's like, oh, you don't have to hide, like, suffer me anymore. And the characters are, like, very, like, candid with each other. And in knowing that they're, like, cheating on their spouses with each other and saying, you know, we don't have to wear a mask with each other. We don't have to lie to each other anymore. And then Lena offers her, like, a piece of the moon pie. And she tries it. And she's like, damn, that's good. You, did you put that in the microwave? And Lena goes, of course I did. I know how to eat moon pie. I thought that was funny. <laughs> and lastly, I lied with saying that I only had one gripe for this season. My second gripe is that it was only five episodes long. Even though it was really dope as like a short series, kind of like um, a series that I've been meaning to like rewatch, which is uh, The Night Of on HBO with Riz Ahmed. That was short, but that was just like perfect. So maybe this is that in that way. But this was so good to me that it makes me not want the other master of none <laughs> to come back you know what i mean like the the comedic seasons one and two and i'm even lying when i say that because i really want that as well you know what would be crazy what would be really dope is if they do like a marvel multiverse-esque type of thing with master of none and try to do it in this like comedy drama world and continue a moments of love multiverse arc where Aziz's character is down, Lena's is up, focuses more on Lena's, Lena and Alicia and their ups and downs and Aziz is a secondary character in that universe. And then also continue the master of none that we're used to where it's focused on Aziz's character and Lena's a secondary character in his universe. And even if the worlds are a little bit different, just have like some of the same like overlapping characters you can get away with that because it's like this multiverse setup so you don't have to be consistent between master of none and moments in love and you satisfy two fan bases which a lot of folks that love master of none and by a lot of folks i mean a handful of friends of, of mine that also enjoyed it <laughs> like i did weren't that happy about this season and like the turn that it took but i personally loved it and i know others other folks did too so i feel there's like a semi-split within the fan base and this is a way that you can satisfy both again i think that would be really dope anyway folks that is season three of master of none aka moments in love which is streaming now on netflix and i highly recommend it and that's the episode, folks. Episode 191 of the Spun Today podcast. Apologies if you heard any background noise. There was lawn mowing going on outside my window. Then I had to switch to a different area to try to record quietly. So if it does sound shitty, just know that I did what I can. 
Also, I just realized that I flip-flopped the mention of the articles. The article that Brian Telerico wrote on RogerEbert.com was in relation to Masters of None. And the article in reference to John DeLorean was a Forbes article, both of which are linked in the episode notes for you guys to check out and read for yourselves. Either way, thank you very much for taking the time to listen to episode 191 of the Spun Today podcast. You are much appreciated. I hope you enjoyed this show, and I also hope you stick around to listen to a few ways you can help support if you so choose. Peace. What's up, folks? Tony here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast as much as I enjoy producing it for you. Here are a few quick ways you can help support this show. You can support the Spun Today podcast by going to spuntoday.com forward slash support. There you'll find my merch section where you can cop the iconic podcasts versus anybody t-shirt in a wide variety of different colors and all different sizes. Also, if you're into cycling, you can cop the super soft, comfortable, minimalist design Spun Today Bike Club t-shirt. Also available in a bunch of different colors and all different sizes. There are a few other designs of different types of t-shirts. Definitely go there and check it out. SpunToday.com forward slash support. It's the merch section where you can also get a dope coffee mug. I have coffee mugs with the brand new redesigned Spun Today logo on one side and the tagline that I end every show with on the other which is start taking steps in the general direction of your dreams. The mug is available in both black and white because we don't discriminate here at the Spun Today podcast. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash support and check out the merch section. You can support the Spun Today podcast by checking out my writing. You can go to spuntoday.com forward slash free writing and check out some of my free association writing, which is intended to be some cathartic free writing, but oftentimes doubles down as motivation for myself and others. At spuntoday.com forward slash short stories, you can read a bunch of the different short stories that I've written and actually listen to the audiobook versions of those short stories there as well. Another way you can help support my writing is by going to spuntoday.com forward slash books and checking out what I have in store for sale. Digital copies are available in all formats, whether it be Kindle, iBooks, or a different type of e-reader. You can also purchase paperback copies if that's your preferred reading method. Currently available, I have my nonfiction, Make Way For You, which is a collection of freely written thoughts that were curated and put together as tips for getting out of your own way. Also available is my debut time travel novel titled Fractal. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash books to show your support. Support the Spun Today podcast by following me on social at Spun Today on Twitter, at Spun Today on Instagram. Please also check out and like my Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Spun Today, and subscribe to my YouTube page as well. On my YouTube page, not only will you get these full length episodes, but you'll also get to check out some chopped up clips and bonus content. To get to my YouTube page, just search Spun Today on YouTube or click on any of the YouTube icons on the footer of my website. Also, don't forget to rate and review this podcast wherever it is that you're listening. It really does help. The Spun Today newsletter is available to each and every one of my listeners absolutely for free. All you have to do is go to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe and drop in your email address. What I'm going to do is brighten up everybody's least favorite day of the week by delivering five curated things within my weekly newsletter every Monday at noon. 
you're going to receive a photo of the week, a recommended podcast of the week. I listen to tons of podcasts from an array of varied interests. I cherry pick the very best ones so that you can check them out. I also share a video of the week, which can be anything from a tasty recipe to a dope rap battle to an enlightening TED talk. I also share a quote of the week. And finally, for my fellow wordsmiths out there, a word of the week so that you can step up your vocab. Again, this curated list is yours absolutely free by going to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe and dropping in your email address and you can unsubscribe at any time. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe, drop in your email address and you'll get the very next one. If you want to help support the Spun Today podcast financially, you can do so by going to spuntoday.com forward slash support. Here you find a few different ways that you can do so. You can shop on Amazon, but first go to my website, spuntoday.com forward slash support. Click on the Amazon banner, which will take you to Amazon's website where you do your shopping like you normally do. It will not cost you anything extra, but I will get credit for driving traffic to their website. Another cool way that you can help support this show is through Patreon, where you can set up reoccurring donations to my podcast, whether it be $1 per show, $2 per show, etc. And depending on how much you choose to pledge, you will receive some Patreon perks in return. Things like free writing pieces, free bookmarks, free digital copies of my books, etc. Again, my Patreon link can be found at spuntoday.com forward slash support. You can also set up similar reoccurring payments via my Ko-fi page. And if you want to send a one-time happiness bomb donation, if you will, you can do so via my PayPal link. Again, all of which can be found at spuntoday.com forward slash support. If you're a fellow creative, a cool way that you can help support the Spun Today podcast and actually be part of the podcast is by filling out my five question questionnaire located at spuntoday.com forward slash questionnaire. Here you'll find five open questions related to your craft, your art, what inspires you to create, what type of unrelated hobbies you're into, and what motivates you to get your work done. You can choose to remain anonymous or plug your website and your work. And once you submit your questionnaire, I read your responses on a future episode of the Spun Today podcast. It's completely free at no cost to you. And what I like to say about it is that if your responses could potentially spark inspiration in someone else, why not share that? SpunToday.com forward slash questionnaire. And as always, folks, substitute the mysticism with hard work and start taking steps in the general direction of your dreams. Thanks for listening. I love you, Aiden. I love you, Daddy.